one of the one of the passages that Andrew read reminded me of the passage in Habakkuk 2 and verse 4. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. It's interesting to consider that pride does have a part in cowardice. The person who says, I can handle this by myself, I don't need God to work this out for me, uh, he's really afraid when you think about it. He's afraid of actually giving over that trust. He's afraid of having that element that we can't see or necessarily put a finger on all the time. And uh, that kind of leads us into what we want to discuss this morning. Um, Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1, please. When God's people returned from the exile, uh, of course there were there was always people that were left behind in Jerusalem, but you know, we find a situation in the book of Nehemiah where they're without protection, proper protection you would say, and they're they're open and bare to the elements, essentially. No wall is there in Jerusalem. And we want to read about some, some of the things that happen in Nehemiah that really help us understand a few basic things. If we want to have a proper love for God and His people, we're going to act in a certain way. Uh, we're going to seek certain things for His people, for ourselves as individuals, and for the local congregation. And I say that because... Uh, there are a lot of good lessons uh, in what Nehemiah does and says uh, in the course of this book. Uh, I believe this is called the Hasmonean Wall. Um, from everything I've understood, this is uh, at least a little bit of what is left of the construction of what Nehemiah helped bring about. Um, just interesting to kind of see that. I would venture to say that we need to have a proper understanding that without God's grace, no work can be done. That was one thing that that I really wanted to zero in on one of the things that Andrew said at the end of his lesson. Why do we need to be courageous? Why do we need courage? I'm opening that up to... Because the action required, because there's work to be done, right? And we find in the course of what Nehemiah uh, has to go through here that God's people are under attack. And, uh, and, and we need to know as a local congregation that we have work to do and we need courage to do it. Now, in order to have that courage, I believe we need to have an understanding of grace. Nehemiah had a great love for God and his people. If you'll... Uh, Look with me in Nehemiah 1, and most of us might remember this story. Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer, and you read the prayer that Nehemiah has in this first chapter. It's just astounding, the humility that he 
that he has here. But look specifically in uh, verses 3 and 4. The news is given to him. Uh, he, he has, you know, certain people came from Judah uh, who had escaped. And it says in verse 3, They said to me, The survivors who were left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I want us to appreciate something here about Nehemiah. What's his reaction to this news? It's mourning. He doesn't just say, well, that's their problem, and I'm a good ways away, I'm not going to worry about it. He's concerned for his people. And specifically, he's concerned over what God wants. What do we weep over? What are we mourning over? We learn from passages like Matthew 5 and verse 4 that Christians mourn over sin. Right? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How are they going to be comforted? Because we have the solution to sin. Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So a great example here is in Nehemiah that he reacts to this news with a true interest in these things. And from this point, look at verse 5. It says, And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sin, sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. This really makes me think of the passage in Daniel 9 when Daniel is praying to the Lord. And Daniel includes himself in the sins of his nation. You know, we talked this morning about you know, uh, how we deal with fellowship issues in the first hour. And there's something to be said here, though, that you know, there, there's an involvement with each other, right? Nehemiah involves himself with these things, and even though he himself may not have committed these things, he's putting this before the Lord. And we need to remember that. It, it is so easy, uh, just to share this, it's so easy for me to say, I'm going to pray for somebody and not follow up on that, not actually do that. That's a, a, a great failing. Um, and, and I remember uh, you know, hearing a brother saying one time that he makes sure that when he tells someone that, that he immediately stops everything and does it. I think that's a pretty good practice for us to think about. But weeping and mourning over sin. And of course, prayer is a huge focus in the New Testament. We could keep going here, but he's... he's saying, and I want us to notice in verse 8, Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you turn to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast to the furthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. You see, he's, he's hearkening back to these promises that God made. 
And it still comes down to the love that God has for His people and the fact that all throughout the New Testament we have prayer as a great focus. In Acts 9 and verse 11, we don't have to turn to all these, but in Acts 9 and verse 11, um, you have uh, Ananias being told that Saul of Tarsus, who's been struck blind, what's he doing? He's praying in those three days uh, after he's been struck blind. In Acts 10 and verse 2, Speaking about Cornelius, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. In Acts 12, in verse 12, uh, they come to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. So we know that God wants us to pray, right? But we, we really need to ask ourselves, based on, you know, if we want to really apply this properly, are we praying? Today, am I praying for the spiritual health of myself and others? And am I praying for the health of this local congregation in the same way that Nehemiah prayed for his people and his homeland? Yes, sir. I was just um, looking back really at... uh, Which verse was it? Um, Talks about uh, how... Him and his father's house had sinned. Oh, yeah, there it is, verse 6. Um, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, like Nehemiah putting himself in that place. And then I and my father's house have sinned. You know, he's uh, uh, basically acknowledging God and who he is, but from the standpoint, you said something about pride being uh, a problem you know, with regard to courage. Well, you know, if I'm nothing and my father's house is nothing, if I'm, I don't have anything to lose. So an act of courage is that much easier, you yeah. know, because I don't mm-hmm. have anything to lose. My father in heaven has everything for me to gain. You know, words, mm-hmm. if I if I have this right view of, you know, if pride is under control and humility is in my grasp, Part of humility is that I'm not bringing anything to the table. I've got mm-hmm. nothing to lose here. You know, it's... Uh, <laughs> and see, that that's grace. Yeah. That goes back to grace because right. grace I've is all about what he does. Yeah, I've got everything to gain and I've got yeah. nothing to lose. Why not be courageous here in this moment? And, and like I say, when you see the humility there, that I mean, we know that, you know, okay, Nehemiah and not maybe, maybe not necessarily even Nehemiah's house or father's house. They may not have been directly, you know, the cause of all this, but, you know, he humbles himself there to to say this in his approach, and obviously it's in his mind and attitude, and, uh, mm. you know, uh, you, you can relate to that, you know, the, okay, I'm not giving up anything. I've got everything to gain here. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's an aid to courage. And, you know, dovetailing from that, he, he it seems like he trusted in God's grace. You know, look at verse 11. And, and I, there's a point at the end of this lesson where I want us to actually step through a few verses you find all throughout the book where Nehemiah is saying, remember what I'm doing, Lord. And I want us to think about why he's saying that. In uh, verse 11, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, 
and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. He's going to the king, and what's he asking for? He's asking for grace. He's not, <laughs> you think about it, he's not asking that he be extremely persuasive or that, you know, you help me be, you know, this fantastic person that the king can't say no to. Just grant him mercy. Grant me mercy. And, and I think we need to consider that, that, that God's grace works. Nehemiah knew that he couldn't see the future or change the future, but he knew that God could. And he knew that was where the, that trust needed to be. And so we have to put our trust in God, not in our own efforts or our own merit. This means doing things His way, working as hard as we can, and leaving the increase in His hands. This is really how God's grace works. It's not a license to sin, of course, but it's an effective power. I would even go so far as to say that God's grace enables us to do His work. If He didn't have the mercy and grace, for example, for us to be here today, then we wouldn't be able to worship Him in the way that we have so far today. And so it enables us to do the work of God. Just to think about a few things. Genesis 6 and verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That statement is said before he even picks up a hammer to start building the ark. Now some people try to say, well that's just, you know, uh, God does that outside of works. No, there's a relationship here. And I don't think that without God's grace that Noah could have built that ark. In John 1 verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Well, even what Jesus did in a sense, you look at the credit that he gives up to his father. You know, I wouldn't be saying anything unless my father wanted me to say it. I wouldn't be doing anything that my father wouldn't want me to do. In, in, in its very essence, that's grace. Acts 4.33 With great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Acts 11 and verse 23. Barnabas comes to Antioch. He he had seen the grace of God. Well, how did he see the grace of God? He saw it in what they had done, and what they had been working on, and the good things that had been happening there. Acts 13, 43. Paul and Barnabas uh, speaking to them there in Antioch and Pisidia, uh, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And then in Acts 14, verse 26, commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Let me suggest, if we don't understand grace, we don't understand our mission. If, if we want to be courageous and we, if we want to be brave and we want to be bold and we're just focused on how good we are and all the good things we've done, we're going to get it wrong. And yes, we are going to get it wrong to begin with, right? But at the same time, grace is not just, we know this is not just a throwaway word used for greetings in the Bible. The apostles used that term in their letters because they had seen God's grace in action. And His mercy is the only way we have or do anything. We need to remember that. Because all that we accomplish, we could, we could go and, and convert thousands of people, right? But ultimately, if we're not doing that from the right motivation, from the standpoint that this is God that's allowing me to do this, this is God that that is doing all this ultimately, then I don't think we really have the right perspective. I think Nehemiah had a very healthy perspective in terms of the grace of God. Yes, sir. I don't know if it helped. I just look back up to verify this thought, but, you know, the cupbearer... was there to 
taste the food or eat, drink the wine or whatever before the king in case he was to be killed. You know, poison. Mm -hmm. They're trying to poison him or doing him or whatever. And so what that would be is it'd both be a position of trust, but also you're expendable. Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't know yep. uh, really if that played into his mindset or, you know, that he was especially well suited for that. But you do see that, um, you know, he's willing to put himself out there to do the will of his real king, you know, for the betterment of, you know, uh, God and his people and all of that. But, you know, obviously that was his job in the real world, too, you know, was to basically put himself out there for the benefit of earthly king, you know, in that case, uh, there, but. Absolutely, and he and he certainly uh, uh, besieges him for that. You know, in chapter two, verses one through five, we see that he actually um, is noticed. Right, <laughs> he's noticed by the king. The king's the one to bring it up, Artaxerxes. And uh, you know, why why are you sad, Nehemiah, verse two? And uh, you know, notice in verse three, Nehemiah says, "Why should my face not be sad?" When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. And it, it's really interesting to see that, you know, his prayer back in chapter 1 pays off. Because he does indeed, you know, everything that the king provides to him. You look at all the things that he's doing for him, right? What does he ask for? Um, he says in verse 7, furthermore, you know, he's, he's got the clearance to go back and to rebuild them. And you know, it says in verse 6, It pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river. They might, might, must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams, beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will accompany, uh, occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. See, that's even in the text right there. You know, Nehemiah is crediting God for this, even though this is pretty magnanimous to the king, right? Here's a whole bunch of wood. Here's a whole bunch of supply to go and help you rebuild this. And so he basically goes back there. And, but we see all, almost already the uh, rumblings of resistance in verse 10. When Samballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. So as in every aspect, God's people always have enemies. We always have people that will try to work against you know, what we're doing. And so what's needed? Well, I think we need planning. In, look at verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were burned down, and its gates which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. 
I have not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, Let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. There's a power in seeing things as they really are. I don't, maybe power is the wrong term, but there's, there's a needed aspect of this, to see things as they really are. You know, Jerusalem was lying in waste. It was destroyed. Uh, he's going to them from the standpoint that this should be a cause of concern for us. And we note, as we've even, even today looked at 1 Corinthians 5, that too many churches are puffed up when they should be ashamed. When was the last time that we really, as individuals and as a congregation, contemplated the state of where we are? You know, um, Mr. Gary, Matt, and I, you know, we, we try to encourage the fellows down at the Pines. I would say, how many percentage, Mr. Gary, do you think of the fellows that are there that think they're all right with God? 90%. About 90%. Most of them will just already kind of act like they're, they're okay with the Lord. Very rare that I find someone that's like, I, I'm just not sure where I am. But, but we need to have that sort of healthy skepticism to think back and say, okay, where's my foundations? Am I really a Christian? Is this congregation really walking in the ways that God wants us to? We've got to, we've got to contemplate that. We've got to be willing to look at the state of things. Remember Revelation 3, Laodicea thought they were rich. They thought they didn't have any problem in the world. But indeed, the, the reality was very, very different. And so Nehemiah gives us a great example here. He's going out and he's looking. He's looking uh, basically uh, uh, on his own, you know. Uh, he's not making this a big uh, show necessarily. But once he finally does tell the people of Judah about it, I want us to note the willingness about this. You know, I, I don't know if this is a saying, but I, I, uh, no planning is a plan to fail, right? We need to have a vision about what we want to accomplish and how we're going to accomplish it. Of course, God gives us the vision, but we need to recognize and see, you know, where is this congregation going to be 10 years down the line, 15 years, 20 years? And we have corporations out there that have 50-year plans. They, they, they're thinking, you know, this is how much we're going to be making, et cetera, et cetera. You know? As a local congregation, we need to be forward-thinking. And this, this willingness that's there, let us rise up and build. They set their hands to this good work. They're ready. Uh, many Christians, I think, are part of a local congregation, and they want to be involved with the work. They want to do everything that they need to do. But maybe because of poor leadership, maybe because of lack of interest, sometimes zeal and effort is wasted. We need to make sure that these Christians, that are you know, everyone who's here, feels like that they're a part of the work. And not just feels like, but is a, a good, solid part of the work. Now, again, there's only so much we can do. There needs to be that interest to be involved. I used to complain with my dad about, well, nobody, nobody at church has anything in common with me. Well, if I actually took a step out and tried to approach them, you know, maybe there would be some common interest there. 
And really, when you think about it, there's no better common interest than the cause of Christ. And so it takes both parties. Uh, so so do, do we have a plan? Are we trying to work together in this way, or are we just sort of drifting along? I think that there are a lot of congregations out there that are just drifting along, just going along with the wind, going along with the waves. Um, poor leadership destroys any possibility of profitable work, but thankfully, it seems the leaders in Judah are ready to go here. Any, any questions or comments there? So, again, almost immediately there is, a, uh, there is a negativity about. Look at verse, um, what is it, verse, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 2. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Those are some pretty powerful, courageous words when you think about it. To tell someone, hey, you have no right to tell us what to do. We're going to get our power from the Lord God. And that's, that's just going to be it. Uh, note, in the course of the book, they uh, mock the Jews' efforts in chapter 4. They conspire to attack the Jews. They seek to negotiate with Nehemiah. There's multiple times where they try to, to uh, go back and forth with him. You know, let, let's talk. Let's, let's look it together. And every time Nehemiah, Nehemiah is just like, listen, I've got too much to do. I, I'm, I'm too busy right now to meet with you, okay? And then finally... They accuse the Jews of rebellion. They say, hey, we're going to tell the king that you guys are trying to organize and stuff. And actually, I want to take a look at that. Look at chapter 6, because I, I, I really like the way that, that Nehemiah responds to this. Um, in verse 6, you've got you know, this letter that's reported among the nations that uh, the Jews plan to rebel. Look in verse 8 of chapter 6. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they all were trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. We need to remember that, brethren. Because there may come times, you know, we talked about fellowship this morning. There may come times when we have to make that hard decision. And maybe someone who's left begins to even publicly slander the congregation and things such as that, you know? And, uh, you know, we handle that when, if it comes to it. But remember how Nehemiah handles this. It's just, this is not true, you know? And, and leave it at that. It's just a, a really, really interesting thing to consider the way that he responds to them. He's focused on the work. He doesn't get wrapped up on the, in, in the things that are resisting or pulling back from that work. And he definitely doesn't try to kowtow and, and just sort of say like, okay, well, you know, we'll get along a little bit. Maybe they'll listen to me. No, he's, he's focused on the work. We need to be focused on the work as well. And they try to entrap Nehemiah as well. Uh, Satan's going to do everything possible to disrupt and hold back our local work. And uh, you could even argue to say that, that the more successful we are in that work, the more things Satan's going to do. So maybe sometimes when things seem to be uh, going extremely well, that's when we really need to be watching out even, even more, more so. Um, 
and I'll just say this, you know, when, when we, when Sharon and I left to go to Pinson, I really felt at that time that, that things seemed pretty good at East Columbus and it seemed like things were going to be okay. And I even heard some good things uh, in the next year or so. And uh, I don't mean to bring that up in a negative way, but uh, just something to think about. The church at Corinth had multiple problems, of course. Um, you know, we find that small things are going to distract from our mission, though. Um, in 2 Timothy 2, verses 16 through 18, uh, we have this really good warning, something we need to be considering and thinking about, not being drawn aside by smaller things. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 16, But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. And uh, so, really some things to think about there, you know, even in terms of, you know, John 4, 1 and 2, the Pharisees heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. You know, they're, they're, they're focused, you know, the Pharisees were focused on those works, but not in a good way. And so we need to remember that, that, that we're going to have that resistance. Even our own brethren can stifle us from the mission. Let's go back to Nehemiah. Yeah, this time chapter 5. <coughs> Nehemiah 5 and verse 1. There was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our children, our uh, brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them and said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, what, are you, what you're doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. And he goes on from there. And, and we recognize that even the, their own people were misusing them and distracting from the work. And even in local congregations, that, that, you know, sometimes some of the biggest issues can be from our own brethren. We know that some Christians maybe don't quite understand the mission of the kingdom and get wrapped up in trivial concerns. Um, the person that approached Jesus and said, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me in Luke 12. You know, Jesus is saying, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? I don't have time for this, Jesus is saying. I've got work to do. We have to have that priority. Are we builders 
or detractors? Are we interrupting the work or are we making sure the work has free course? There's some good questions for us to consider. Now, again, I, I, I hope I don't have to really belabor the fact that God's grace brought this victory. The fact is, good brethren want to work. Uh, the Jews, of course, were tempted to lose their nerve and quit. Uh, back in chapter 4, a little bit earlier, in verse 10, you have this resistance almost immediately coming up. And it says, Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, They will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came, they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the leaders and the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses." That's courageous. That's, that's, courageous uh, uh, that's a courageous statement based on the fact that God told Nehemiah that, hey, you know, everything's going to be okay. Look at chapter 6, though. I don't mean to kind of be going back and forth here, but how long did it take for this wall to be built up? In chapter 6 and verses 15 and 16 say, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And it happened when all the enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Now, I know that our government isn't the fastest uh, to, to put things up, right? How long does it take us to typically build uh, a, a large structure, you know? It might take him years. I know, you know, there was one stretch of highway uh, up near Russellville, Alabama, that they were working on that when I was just a little boy, about three years old. And it wasn't really until I was about 16 or 17 or 18 that they actually had it completed, you know. And, and, and so 52 days, that's about the span of what, a month, two months? So what was the key? The key was the grace of God working there and helping them. What's the difference between good work and great work? The difference is everybody's involved. Everybody's working. Everybody's a part of the work. And why did they work so well? In Nehemiah 4 and verse 6, it says, So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. The people had a mind to work. We need to have a healthy attitude against others. And I want us to actually notice as well in that chapter, in verses, uh, verses 3 through 5, Yeah, look, look at what Tobiah says, Tobiah the Ammonite. In verse 3, Whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. That's just, uh, you know, if you really want to insult what somebody's doing, just kind of say, well, you know. Uh, but in verse 4, here... Uh, Look what it says. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. 
You see, that's the attitude we need to have. Not necessarily that they don't get, don't receive forgiveness, but that we give it up to God. We let God deal with these things. Note, they did not expect the work to be done for them. That's not what grace is about. Grace would have been ineffective if they said, well, God's just going to take care of it. God can build the wall. No, they had to work. And they also did not expect Nehemiah to be the only one working. I don't think I have to stretch very far for us to properly apply that to local congregations, right? We can't just expect things to pop up and expect things to happen. And we can't just expect the preacher or the elders or whoever to do it for us. Good workers come from a learned maturity and a servant mentality. And I think you know, Titus 2 handles that very well. We're soldiers for the cause of Christ. Are we going to put one soldier in the battlefield? Um, sometimes Christians in congregations expect the building and the services to be there for them. But those Christians are seldom, if ever, there for the work. So I want us to just think about this and just kind of go back to chapter 1 with me. And let's just step through some, some passages where I think Nehemiah, again, is focusing back on things from the standpoint of letting God see these things and letting God handle them while still working himself. We read out of Nehemiah 1 and verse 8, Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Uh, then in Nehemiah 5, chapter 5 and verse 19. All through the book, Nehemiah has these little statements that he says. Uh, he says here in Nehemiah 5 and verse 19, Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah uh, 6 and verse 14. My God, remember Tobiah and Sambalat according to these their works, and the prophetess Naodia, and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. This is right after they even hire a guy to go in to warn him about being killed. But it turns out that the guy, you know, that, that, that he doesn't know that he was hired at first. Uh, chapter 13, just at the end of the book. You know, what's interesting about this, too, is that people come back, they're getting this good work done. Turns out there's some other things they have to take care of. And there are some who actually needed to, uh, to, to get rid of their foreign wives. Uh, but in Nehemiah 13 and verse 14, Nehemiah says, Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. Verse 22 and I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves, that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Verse 29. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Verse 31. The very last statement in the last part of that verse. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. We need that attitude. How can we be courageous? How can we be bold? How can we be strong? We need to remember God's grace. And remember that for, me to, for him to be strong, I have to be weak. 
And so just a lot of things for us to consider there. Any questions or comments at all? Just really think it's very powerful, um, all the things that you see in that book concerning God's grace and what he did for his people.